Pop, have you read every one of those books behind you? See me, I, I don't have any books behind me, so it's a sign of a vacuous mind. Every one of those books you've read? Uh, every single one of them. And uh, I figured that you read all the same books. You just got them on Kindle. You're smarter than me. You don't have all the physical trash that I got behind my head. Well, no, it makes you look smart. Look at this, Pump. This is, uh, I'm at the Bacharach Hotel. Uh, we're, we're doing the show live, so I'm in the city today. And they gave me a pen from the Thomas Jefferson era. Of course, one U.S. dollar in the Thomas Jefferson era has maybe two thousand dollars of 2023 purchasing power <laughs> and so i think that's a big topic that we should talk about on today's show yeah look george washington like you're just going to stroke out a couple of important documents there all right this is speak up with anthony scaramucci So, Pomp, the world is passing me by. I'm, at least I'm mature enough to understand that. I'm, I'm aging out as an elder statesman in the world of investments, all wealthy on clients, demanding a crypto tutorial from none other than Anthony Pompliano. And so uh, before I introduce my good friend, Anthony Pompliano, Pomp, when did you get into crypto? When did you buy your first Bitcoin? I don't remember the first Bitcoin. Um, I started mining Ethereum in 2016. Um, and the first price I remember, it was like seven, eight bucks. And then um, the first like, oh, I should pay attention to this was the 2017 bull market. But as many people, uh, I thought I missed it. I was like, oh, like this thing's already a thing. You know, I completely missed all of the upside. How stupid of I was, was, uh, was I. But uh, obviously that turned out not to be true. So Anthony Pompliano, uh, Italian-American, grew up in North Carolina, uh, went to a school that is very famous because another very famous and very wealthy Italian-American went there, Kenneth Langone, Bucknell University, uh, a small school out in Pennsylvania, Lewisburg, Pennsylvania. Uh, what did you do after Bucknell, Ant? Um, I, I was in the military while, uh, while in school, uh, did a deployment, uh, to Iraq, uh, during my junior year of college, I got pulled out of school to do it. Um, and then uh, when I came back, uh, I started my first business and really it was, uh, me running from getting a job. I was like, well, this sounds way better. And so I ended up building two software businesses. Um, they were, you know, small profitable things, ended up selling each one of them, uh, made a little bit of money, but, but not enough to retire. Um, and then decided, Hey, I either need to go to business school or I need to go somewhere where I can learn how to scale these things. How do I build them bigger? Um, and so I took a job uh, as a product manager at Facebook uh, and went out there and, and learned quite a bit and, uh, you know, kind of really created an inflection point for my career. And the crypto experience 2016, why did you start mining Ethereum? What, what got in your head? What did you see? Uh, somebody like me, an elder statesman, an institutionalist, did not see it. The Winklevosses came to me at a SALT conference in 2014, tried to explain to me Bitcoin. I looked at them like they were crazy. Uh, and so I missed it. You saw it. What did you see? Well, I missed it too, right? In the sense of, uh, I think it was 2013. It was the first time I heard about it. I, I've got like uh, DMs where I was, you know, messaging with people about it and, and completely uh, dismissive. Um, and then in 2014 uh, or end of 2014, maybe beginning of 2015, uh, when I was at Facebook, we hired David Marcus uh, from PayPal. He's a former president of PayPal. And uh, he and a couple of folks who came with him had been talking about Bitcoin and, and potentially, you know, could they integrate it into products or, or what would happen? 
I turned to one of the engineers who sat near me and I said, you know, what do you think about this? And he just said, it's stupid. I never Googled it and anything. I just, okay. Smart person told me it's stupid. I moved on. Um, 2016, what really got me though, was not the, what I'll call Bitcoin or crypto pitch. It wasn't, you know, Hey, we're creating a new financial system or any of that stuff. It was simply a, a young kid who was in college said, uh, you can mine, you basically buy this equipment, you plug it in and you can, uh, get money for it. Um, and my family had been in the data center business for a long time. And he basically pitched it to me as just like a new type of data center that's lower cost to, to actually operate. Um, and so, you know, I've done what I've done many times. Usually it doesn't work out this time. It did. I took some money. I bought the machines. I got them plugged in somewhere and I just waited and I was mining about five Ethereum a day. Uh, but at $8, you know, not really going to write home about a couple, you know, 40, 50 bucks. Uh, but then all of a sudden at the beginning of 2017, the price of ether went from eight, $10 to 30 to a hundred in a couple, you know, three, four months. And I was like, oh, I should pay attention to this, right? Something's happening here that I don't understand. And so I pretty much took, um, you know, a year and a half or so to do a pretty deep dive and ended up getting high conviction and then decided to uh, focus a lot of my time and energy on it. Okay. So Ethereum is the first spot you go to. You're mining Ethereum. Uh, you're mining it in the 20, 30, $40 uh, valuation. Where is Ethereum now, Anthony? Uh, it should be like twenty two hundred to twenty four hundred dollars. Um, I wish that I could say that I was smart enough to hold. Uh, I sold it all around three hundred bucks and thought I was a genius because I was up, you know, thirty x. And um, instead, uh, had too much pride to buy back in as it ran all the way up to uh, fourteen hundred dollars in twenty seventeen. Um, but what happened during that time period was. Although I was sitting on the sidelines in terms of uh, not buying back into uh, the Ethereum market, I was I was learning. I, I really sat down and I was studying as if you know uh, I was in school. And what I came to the conclusion of was uh, maybe Ethereum was going to work, maybe it wasn't. But Bitcoin specifically was you know a much higher conviction thing for me. Um, and so in the summer of 2018, uh, I went out, I raised a fund, uh, and I waited. Um, and so Bitcoin went from $20,000 at the end of 2017, crashed all the way down to $3,200. And I made a pretty sizable personal bet, sub $3,500 on Bitcoin. And then from there, uh, decided to start allocating the fund and, and kind of really said, okay, you know, I think that's the bottom of the market and let's go. So one of the things about Wealthy on and Speak Up with the Mooch or Anthony Scaramucci is that we are very customer oriented, very viewer oriented. We got a tremendous amount of feedback over the last couple of weeks about getting somebody on that could take the group through a deep dive. So it's not CNBC where you get five to seven minutes. I mean, those shows are great and so forth. But this is a show where we would like you to explain to a viewer what is crypto? Mm -hmm. What is something like Bitcoin? How is it distinguished from something like a Ethereum or Solana? Uh, and take your time yet. Tell, take us through what you know and what you would want somebody that doesn't know anything about the space to know. Yeah. I mean, let, let's start with Bitcoin first. I, I think it's kind of the, the easiest one to wrap your head around. Um, if you think of what a currency is, right? A currency is issued by a government or a central bank. Uh, it basically is an asset that people either believe will hold its value and store value, uh, or people can use to exchange for goods and services. Um, the dollar specifically used to be backed by gold. Uh, since 1971, we've unpegged it. And now it is really just the full faith of the uh, federal government. And uh, the reason why the dollar has value is because you and I believe it has value. 
um, when people think of Bitcoin, uh, especially people uh, who, you know, uh, have been in finance, maybe even before uh, the unpegging from gold, but definitely before Bitcoin's existence, uh, they say, why would I trust this new thing? But what I think is happening uh, with Bitcoin specifically is that there's an entire new generation of people, right? If, if you are 16 years old, you've never lived a day of your life without Bitcoin being in existence. And so for this new generation, they, they believe, right? They see that there's value in it. Now, what exactly is it is important. You can think of a uh, automated central bank is the way that I describe it. And so what that means is uh, there is um, a organization, but rather than it be made of people who go into a conference room and make decisions based on the monetary policy, the monetary policy was determined by one person. They wrote it into software and that software is not going to change. And so what's happening here is um, the monetary policy in the United States a dollar unlimited supply and we constantly change. Are we printing more? Are we taking more out of circulation? Are we changing interest rates? All, all this kind of uh, manipulation of the currency. With Bitcoin, there's only ever going to be 21 million. And right now, 900 Bitcoin a day come into circulation. And so when you see that, what happens is that one of the reasons why people are putting more value or, or ascribing trust to this is because there's certainty. If I asked you, you know, what are interest rates going to be tomorrow? You don't know. If I ask you how much money was printed today, you don't know. But if I say to you how much Bitcoin was printed, you know exactly because you can go and you can verify it online. And so when you think of a digital currency, a lot of people say, oh, I, I don't like digital currencies. Well, the dollar is a digital currency today, right? I, I don't carry around tons of cash outside of my Italian singles. But other than that, what I've got to do is I've got to go and I've got to use the internet to move money, right? When I go and I spend a credit card or I go and I tap Apple Pay or whatever, I'm using digital currency. What we're really talking about is not so much a form factor change as much as we're talking about a monetary policy change. And so when people look at Bitcoin, another component of it is just, you already have a world full of multiple currencies, right? Here in the United States, we are dollar maximalist. We carry dollars, we use dollars, we get paid in dollars, we pay taxes in dollars, we save in dollars. But if I go to Mexico, when I walk across an imaginary line, right? Now all of a sudden they're peso maximalist. Somebody there does the exact same thing. And so one way to think about Bitcoin is the people on the internet, they're just Bitcoin maximalist, right? They use Bitcoin to get paid, to pay taxes, to do all this stuff. And so I think that's really um, a couple of different ways to kind of wrap your head around it. It's a currency just like anything else. Um, it's got a little bit different monetary policy. And a younger generation is growing up seeing this as a viable alternative. And the more people that believe in a currency, the more value that it attracts. And it seems like it's headed in the right direction. So, Pomp, you're referencing Italian singles. Okay, so let's talk about it. I came on your podcast. I brought them with me. Look, these are Italian singles, right? So in our neighborhood that we grew up in, right, we hand these things out to people. We get them excited, right? Exactly. Okay. But let's just for our viewers. Just, just for you. Just for you. Yeah, and I, and I appreciate it, Anthony. Now, this is made out of cotton. And it's made out of linen. Go Google it. Okay. It's one part cotton, one part linen. Why do we trust this pump? And why should we trust Bitcoin? Yeah. I mean, look, the, a huge reason why we trust the dollar is because every single time we try to go spend it, somebody will give us a good or a service for it. Right. If I go to the store and I give them a $20 bill, they will give me whatever in the store is worth $20. And so we trust it because we've been trained over time that it works. And there's nothing wrong with the dollar from that standpoint. It's actually a great medium of exchange, right? There's people all around the world that would love to have dollars if possible. Um, the reason why I think that there's people who are saying, wait a second, maybe I don't want to have 100% of my wealth in dollars is because historically the dollar has been devalued. 
And so if we go and we look, I mean, just from 2020 to the end, uh, or uh, I'm sorry, uh, to the end of 2022, $1 lost about 17% of its purchasing power. So what it took to buy with $1 now can only buy 87 cents, you know, three years later. And so people say, okay, hold on a second here. If I'm a wealthy person in America, I've pretty much learned the trick to building wealth, get out of dollars, right? If I own stocks, the stocks go up about eight to 11% a year because the dollar is being devalued. Real estate goes up, right? Real estate is responsible for 90% of millionaires in America, supposedly. If that's true, well, what are they doing? They're getting out of dollars. They're holding an asset. That asset is priced in dollars. The dollar gets devalued. You need more of those dollars to buy the asset later. And so what ultimately really I think is kind of um, becoming more apparent to people is that the dollar is amazing as a medium of exchange and something like Bitcoin or other types of store value assets are great for saving. And so that's really where I think you're, you're kind of seeing this bifurcation is people are going to say, hey, I'm going to use my dollars to spend and then I'm going to use my Bitcoin to save for the foreseeable future. Okay. I mean, it's a, it's a very good summary. Um, and so people are probably a little still confused, because I was in the beginning, but basically what you're saying is we trust this uh, because we can give it to somebody else. And as a result of it, we trust it. What it really is, is a database. And Correct. what's unique about Bitcoin is that it's a fully transparent, fully distributed database, which basically locks us into value exchange between each other. And so once we understand that money is a technology that we're using so that we don't have to barter, uh, well, then how do you make a more perfect technology, uh, which is precise and can't get devalued by a government? OK, and that's basically what something like Bitcoin would represent. So let's now go to something like a Solana or an Ethereum. What are those, Anthony? And uh, how would you describe those to our listeners? So if I look at the entire cryptocurrency market, I basically would drive, uh, draw a line. I would put Bitcoin on one side of the line. It is trying to be money. And then I would put all these other technologies, things like Solana, Ethereum, et cetera. And they're trying to be technology platforms. So you can think of Ethereum as a, a decentralized version of let's say uh, Apple's iOS system, right? So if somebody wants to go build a mobile app, they go and they write software, they use iOS, which is the operating system to write that software. They then list it on Apple's mobile store, right? Or their app store. And then users can go and they can download it. But what you're really doing when you build that mobile app is you're building it on top of iOS, this operating system. What Ethereum essentially has done is they said, well, wait a second. Why does Apple get to make all the rules? Why does Apple get all of the control? Why does Apple have kind of this monopoly on this uh, technology? And so Ethereum basically created an operating system. Uh, they, they call it a decentralized computer, but basically an operating system where people can come and they can go ahead and you can actually build stuff on top of it. Now, what you build is up to the individual developers. Some people want to build dating apps. Some people want to build you know, uh, exchanges to trade uh, on. Some people want to build uh, the next great video game. Whatever they want to build, they can build. Um, and so what's unique about it is if you want exposure to Apple's App Store, you got to buy Apple stock. But that also means you got exposure to their VR bet, to their phone bet, to a bunch of things. With Ethereum, what you're able to do is you can actually buy Ether, which is the cryptocurrency of Ethereum, and you get direct exposure to the rise or fall of popularity of the Ethereum operating system. And so really, I think what we've seen with Ethereum and many others now 
is there is this change from centralization to decentralization. Rather than have a small group of people control things, we actually want the, the majority of people to control them. And then also the ability for individuals to participate in the rise and fall in popularity and value of products, not companies. So being able to just invest in Amazon's AWS system versus all of Amazon. And so by doing that, now you actually are able to incentivize people who are playing in that ecosystem. So you can imagine if you hold Ether or the Ethereum token, now all of a sudden you're really, really incentivized to see Ethereum be successful, right? And so it creates these network effects and kind of unique aspects that really drive behavior in a way that maybe traditional centralized companies haven't been able to accomplish. Okay, if, yeah, and this is why I wanted to bring you on in because you you describe it in a way where people could understand it, and so so ultimately, would you say Ethereum is another form of currency, or how would you describe Ethereum? I think we both could say that Bitcoin is definitely a form of currency. Uh, how would you how would you describe Ethereum? Yeah, I, I think that. Um... What, what is unique about Bitcoin is that it is only trying to do really one thing, which is be that currency, right? And so that's why I say when you draw that line, it's like, hey, what's trying to be money? Okay, Bitcoin is trying to do that. These other platforms, uh, they have aspects of money on them, right? I, I always joke that like an airline has uh, all kinds of miles and flights and you know different incentives, whatever. But what you're not going to do is you're not going to take your airline miles and go to Starbucks and buy your coffee with it. Right, it's only used within that ecosystem, and so same thing with Ethereum. They have an Ether token. You can use that to pay for things within that ecosystem, but you can't take it outside of the ecosystem. And so, you know, yes, it has a currency element to it, but really, the kind of focus of the developers and the people who are working on this is to build that operating system, which then applications can be built on top of and ultimately serve the users uh, that are kind of like at the end of the uh, experience. Okay, I mean. So let's let's go over a couple of these. So what's the difference between an Ethereum and say something like Solana? Well, Solana is going to work and Ethereum's not. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> well, you're, you're bullish on Solana. Right? I'm, I'm, I'm kidding with that comment. Um, yeah, no, I, I, I definitely am. Well, that'll, be the, that'll be the headline from the show, which is what I love about it. <laughs> no, the um, look, Solana basically had the benefit, right? Ethereum looked at Bitcoin. There, there's a gentleman, uh, Vitalik Buterin, who he actually was working on Bitcoin. He was writing for Bitcoin Magazine. He was very into Bitcoin. I think he still is into Bitcoin, if you were to ask him. But he realized, hey, this blockchain technology, I can manipulate or change it in some way, evolve it so that I can do something else with it. And that was the birth of Ethereum. Solana basically had the benefit of looking at Bitcoin, looking at Ethereum. They said, hey, we can make some changes and, and we can really go after. What they were looking for is high throughput, lots and lots and lots of transactions, and to do it very inexpensively. And the idea was the more inexpensive the transactions, the more people will want to use it, right? The more use cases that come. And so they've done a fantastic job doing it. The reason why I say I'm bullish on Solana is not because I'm some you know smart person who, who's figured out something no one else has. I just look where the developers go. Right. When I first started investing, and I remember when I wrote my very first angel investment check, uh, I asked somebody who was a very well-known angel investor, what's the secret? How, how do you find great companies? And he said to me, never think you're smart. Always just follow the developers. And it has, you know, over and over and over again, always been right. And I think Solana, in terms of that developer activity, shows that people are building there and there's a lot of value that's going to accrue. So are they building there and Ethereum or have some of those developers moved from Ethereum to Solana? Both. I, I think some people are saying, hey, look, you know, I, I was building on Ethereum before. 
for whatever reason, I don't want to do that anymore. It could be technical. could just be, hey, I want more intellectual stimulation and a new challenge. And they go to a uh, Solana. Some people have been building on a, Ethereum or other blockchains and they realize users are flowing to Solana. And so they say, let me go build where kind of the users are. Let me go fish in the biggest pond. Um, but some people are saying, look, I'm building on multiple blockchains, right? There's many, many projects or, or applications that are very popular right now that are on all kinds of blockchains, right? If you look at stable coins, stable coins are basically a digital token that's backed by a dollar. So when you buy it, it's $1, similar to if you go to your bank account, you got $1 sitting in there for every digit that's uh, sitting in your bank account. Well, these stable coins are actually popular on blockchains that people wouldn't expect. For example, Tether, which is the largest stable coin, the most popular blockchain is on Tron, which started out and a lot of people kind of dismissed it. Like, this is stupid. What, what is this thing? It's a scam, right? Um, and, and so what I think ends up happening is Tether doesn't care if Tron, Ethereum, Solana, or anywhere else ends up being the place that works. They want to be everywhere for everybody. And so their application will be across these different platforms. Right. And just for our viewers and listeners, what Anthony's referring to, Tether is actually a stable coin on the internet and so what ends up happening is you can store value in U.S. dollars in Tether. So if you're in Bitcoin and you want to trade out of Bitcoin and put it into U.S. dollars but not come off the chain, so to speak, you can store it in something called Tether. You can also store it in the Circle stablecoin as well. Uh, and so there are Ethereum-based stablecoins and Solana-based stablecoins. And I think what Anthony's pointing out is Tether is sort of like a Swiss army knife for all of these different technologies, all these different tokens, when you want to swap out of the token into US dollar, uh, you can do it in the form of Tether. Is that fair to describe it that way, Anthony? I think a great analogy is Facebook has an iPhone app. They got a web app that you can go to facebook.com on your computer. And they also have an Android uh, mobile app, right? They don't care where the user is. They want to be everywhere. And so iPhone, Android, desktop, it doesn't matter. Same thing with Tether's doing. They don't care what blockchain you're on, right? They're going to be everywhere. Okay, so you talked about mining. You mined Ethereum. Is it, can you mine something like Solana? And obviously, there's Bitcoin miners and there's companies that are set up to be Bitcoin miners. So, what is mining? Describe, describe that to somebody. Uh, yeah. So, and, let, and, let, and tell us if you're able to do it on, across different tokens. So let's talk about Bitcoin mining first. I think that, you know, it's kind of always the, the place to start. Um, the way that the Bitcoin blockchain works, when it's decentralized, the only way that it really can work is if a lot of people are participating, right? And so rather than have that centralized hierarchy and decision making, now you have decision making all around the world. The way that I describe the Bitcoin blockchain is actually like a game of Monopoly. So if me... Anthony and two other people sat down to play Monopoly. We would set up the board. We'd put our money out in front of us and we would start to play. Now, the way the blockchain works is imagine as I rolled first, I had a legal pad sitting next to don't, me. Don't play with Deirdre Scaramucci, by the way, because <laughs> she will beat your brains in, okay? I think I lost <laughs> 10 straight in a row to her. She, she can't great. win. I grew up in a family of five boys. We never, we've never finished a game. <laughs> Somebody flips the board. I keep going. I'm sorry about the throwing her in there, but so if destroyed you, me. It's if if you have the legal pad, um, you know, let's say we start at 10 o'clock, right? And so 10 a.m. And I say, okay, uh, Anthony Scaramucci pays Anthony Pompliano $200, 10 a.m. Then all of a sudden somebody else owes you $100. And I write somebody else owes Anthony Scaramucci $100, right? And I keep doing that. And for 10 minutes, I write down every single transaction that's occurred on that legal pad. After 10 minutes, I say, okay, pause. I rip off the sheet of paper and I put it to the side. 
We keep playing. I write down every transaction again on the second piece. And we keep doing this, right? Every 10 minutes, each piece of paper represents 10 minutes. Then all of a sudden, you say, hey, you see that guy sitting over there? I think he's got my $200. And he says, do you know, Anthony, I, I paid you the $200. We go back into the stack of papers and we see 1047, right? This guy paid you $200. Okay, we're good. Let's keep playing, right? That ledger, that, that record of what's actually happened is what the blockchain does. So every 10 minutes, what the blockchain is doing is it's looking at all the transactions that happened in the last 10 minutes. All of these miners are basically looking at it along with node operators saying, yep, everything looks good. No one's cheating. No one's you know doing anything illegal. And then what it does is it basically freezes it. It rips the paper off that legal pad. It says, okay, we're not going to touch this anymore. It's immutable now. And it's going to be chained to the last uh, connection. And so when you think about it, each piece of paper is a block of transactions. The blockchain is a chain of blocks of transactions. And so what miners are really doing there are miners are making sure that the rules are enforced, making sure no one's cheating, right? Now, why would they do this? Because it costs money. You got to buy equipment. You got to spend money on energy. You got to go and run the facility, et cetera. It looks just like a data center. They're doing it because they're getting paid to do it. So when Bitcoin's monetary policy was written, Bitcoin is putting Bitcoin into circulation every single day. Right now, 900 Bitcoin a day come into uh, circulation. The miners all around the world are competing for those 900 Bitcoin. Some days you get a lot, some days you don't get a lot, right? Um, but what the miners are really doing is they're running a business. And so if you think of a data center business, there's an entrepreneur who's gone and bought computing power, rented power, um, got computer hardware, and they have a sales team. And they go out and they pitch for business. Here, what the miners are doing is they're buying the hardware, they're renting the power and the facility, but they don't have to go pitch for business. They don't have a sales team. They simply just turn their machines and point it at this algorithm. They run the algorithm and they're paid for doing so. And so it's a very, very profitable business if you run it correctly. And so there's a constant incentive for more and more people to join as miners. And what's ended up being the result of that is the Bitcoin network is the single largest and strongest computer network in the world, has more computing power running it than anything else in the world because of that free market incentive. Okay. Again, brilliant exposition. Why does the government not like this stuff? Like why... Is somebody like Elizabeth Warren so anti-crypto? And uh, we get clients or viewers saying, you know, is crypto used to hide money? Is it for terrorism? Uh, why is somebody like Jamie Dimon, who I think is probably one of the smartest people, period, the end, you know, why is he saying shut it down and so on and so forth? Well, you know, first on the commentary in terms of like, what are some of the issues, right? Uh, terrorism, criminals, et cetera. Criminals use toothbrushes. Criminals use cars, right? They fly on airplanes and they wear clothes. No one is saying that, hey, we shouldn't let them wear clothes or use cars or use toothbrushes. And so what really is kind of the crux here is it's kind of like the boogeyman, right? Is like, oh, they use this thing. When you actually go and you look at the details, there's a former director of the CIA who did a big study. And what he found was less than 0.4%. So less than one half of a percent of all transactions on the Bitcoin network are for nefarious or criminal use cases. And if you compare that, more than $2 trillion a year is just money laundering alone in the fiat world. And so the criminality is actually much more prevalent in the fiat US dollar system than in the crypto system. Now, why is that? Well, it's a public ledger. And so if you go talk to the DEA or the FBI or law enforcement, 
They love when people use Bitcoin for criminal activity because there's an immutable record out in public that can be looked at at any point that they can trace. And now there are stories after stories where they are finding previous criminals who use this stuff by tracking down with new technologies. And so criminals are coming to their senses and realizing we shouldn't be using this technology. Let's stick with cash. Now, why do some of these people hate it? I would separate the critics into two categories. There's the people who actually don't like it. I believe Elizabeth Warren actually doesn't like it. She actually would like to see it shut down or, or kind of you know put back in the box. Um, I don't think that'll happen, but but that's her desire. People like Jamie Dimon, uh, it falls back to kind of a different category. Don't listen to what they say. Just watch what they do. And you can't at one point go and testify and say, hey, we should shut this down. While at the same time, you've got you know 200 people running a blockchain team inside of JP Morgan. You can't be a uh, participant in the Bitcoin spot ETFs and going in and providing capital and, and going to help uh, you know push those if you're also saying that you think it should be shut down. And so everyone, I think, uh, understands kind of the game that gets played. Uh, a lot of times when folks go uh, in front of politicians and regulators, et cetera, executives will share either a personal opinion or share a certain view of the world, but they also have a fiduciary duty to their shareholders. And so you can think that it's the worst thing in the world, but if this is the technology that may disrupt your bank, you probably need to be able to say to shareholders, hey, I was doing my best to stay ahead of this thing, and, and we were also simultaneously working on it. And so I think that that second category, uh, there's a lot of talking, a lot of critiques, but really their actions speak much, much louder than the words. Okay, so very, very helpful. I want to keep going. You have something called a having. Okay, is that only for Bitcoin or is that for everything? Bitcoin is the only major cryptocurrency that has this. Um, again, when we talked about the monetary policy, there's 21 million uh, Bitcoin that will ever exist. About 19 million of them or so are already out in circulation. The way they got into circulation is every 10 minutes, 50 Bitcoin were distributed for the first four years. After four years, that number was cut in half from 50 to 25. That is the happening, right? Every four years, the incoming daily supply is cut in half. So it went from 50 to 25 to 12 and a half to uh, 6.25. Um, and now is uh, going to get cut in half again coming up here in uh, April or so. And so that having point, I always say is important because it's basically a supply shock, right? Imagine if gold miners, all of a sudden tomorrow, everyone decided they're only going to dig up 50% of the gold they were digging up you know, last year. It'd be a big deal. If demand for gold stayed the same, the price of gold would have to rise because there's less gold coming into the market. That's what happens every four years with Bitcoin. And what we've historically seen is that the price of Bitcoin rises very aggressively about 12 to 18 months after that halving period. Okay. So that that is a program design which decreases the supply of Bitcoin, uh, which theoretically would then potentially increase the value of Bitcoin. Is that fair to say? Because Every time that that's happened, Anthony, we've seen appreciation in Bitcoin. Yeah, I mean, it's just supply and demand, right? I I, um, uh, I don't got a big brain. I didn't pay attention a lot in school, but I do remember Economics 101. And what they taught us was if supply goes down and demand goes up, then the price has to move to be able to clear everyone. And so that's ultimately what happens here is the supply is going down of Bitcoin. There's also other supply dynamics like lost Bitcoin, etc. Um, and demand seems to be rising. You know, if you go back 10 years ago, it was basically crazy people on the Internet. Now we're talking about Larry Fink going on national television, talking about how great Bitcoin is. And so as global demand rises and supply decreases, 
the price should still have to keep going up to accommodate everyone. Okay, so you mentioned Larry Fink. I met with Larry Fink uh, in Abu Dhabi a few years ago. He was negative on Bitcoin. Uh, obviously, Jamie's negative on Bitcoin. I was negative on Bitcoin. You were told by a very smart engineer to be negative on Bitcoin. Uh, most people start the journey as not understanding Bitcoin and being negative on Bitcoin. Uh, explain your eureka moment, if you don't mind. And then um, I'll try to explain mine quickly, and then we'll go to some questions from our outside audience. So the easiest way I know how to describe it is just, uh, I, I now have just started calling it the trade of our generation, which is what is the one thing that you are the most certain of in finance? And for me, it is that they are going to continue to debase the currency, period, right? National debt, a bunch of issues, but they're going to have to continue to debase the currency. If they continue to do that, things that are priced in dollars are likely to be much more valuable in the future. We talked about real estate, stocks to a degree, Bitcoin, et cetera. And Bitcoin, to me, what the aha moment was, is that it was a currency that could not be manipulated. No one controlled it. No one could create more of it. And so what I liked about it was it was, frankly, 180 degree different than all of the fiat currencies in the world. And what I saw was that it was very similar to gold. It had sound money principles. Outside the system, no one could create more of it. But what I've known from being a technology investor is that the digital version of an asset is always at least 10 times bigger than the analog version. So if you go back throughout history and you look at tons of things that have been digitized over time, they end up being worth 10 times more. You can imagine something as simple as email versus physical letters, right? How much bigger is it when you do that? Think of TV stations versus all of the internet on YouTube, right? The digital version ends up being worth much, much more. And so if Bitcoin just simply is digital gold, and when I first came across it, it was worth not a lot. Well, unless something catastrophic happens or an external shock, it's probably going to be worth a lot more in the future. And so it was a bet worth taking. What about you? Yeah, so my eureka moment was actually in the White House. And I think I told you this on your podcast. I was, uh, and it happened on a Wednesday, and because I, I was only there for one Wednesday. So that's how I know it was a Wednesday. When, the, when two Fed guys showed up with the white paper discussing the digitization of the U.S. dollar and using the blockchain to do it, I said, okay, I, I didn't, what do you mean, like blockchain, like Bitcoin? And they said, yes. And then they said to me, man, you should really get up to speed on what Bitcoin is. And then I got fired shortly thereafter. I went and bought the uh, URL skybridgebitcoin.com. But even then, Anthony, I was very, very cautious. My first time on your podcast, if you remember, we were discussing the history of money. We were discussing my interest in Bitcoin, but I had not yet made a Bitcoin investment. Uh, and then obviously in October, November, after a long conversation with Michael Saylor, uh, we started deploying uh eight and then eventually nine figures into Bitcoin. Uh, we actually own things like Solana and, and Ethereum as well. Um, let's take some outside questions. I think we've got a, uh, a voicemail caller, uh, left us a voicemail uh, a few days ago. Let's play that one first, and then we'll take some outside questions. Hey, Anthony. Uh, my name is Jeff from Connecticut. I'm curious on your thoughts about the Helium network. Uh, do you think it has any legs? I've been running a Helium miner and haven't really made anything from it yet. But all the crypto on the rise, I'm optimistic. What do you think? So, Ann, I'm going to ask you to take that. So 
I'm looking right now for uh, the exact data, but Helium, basically, for those that uh, are unfamiliar, is um, it's a mobile network that, again, is kind of decentralized and distributed. Um, and people can buy a machine, they can basically plug it in, and they help provide, uh, you know, some sort of mobile coverage to those that, um, that, that are around them. So you can imagine in New York City, there's a bunch of cell towers, right, with Starlink, they maybe be uh, sending them down from satellites. But what happens if people actually own it, and they can just put it in their house, very similar like an internet modem? Uh, and you provide coverage. In exchange for doing that, you get paid Helium tokens when people use that service that you are providing. Now, that sounds like, ah, okay, maybe that's a crazy idea. Maybe it works, maybe it doesn't. Here's the interesting thing, is that the Helium network is now actually traveling uh, much more than the T-Mobile network. Or, or I'm sorry, the Helium network is closing in on the T-Mobile network in terms of the amount of gigabytes that's actually traveling on this network. So it's becoming much, much more popular. Now, if users actually end up adopting this and they actually are able to withstand or, or uh, withstand any sort of drop in that popularity, then people end up owning that cellular network versus a centralized company. And so if that was to occur, of course, the uh, token and the network would become much more valuable. The reason why I think people are, are uh, cautiously optimistic, hesitant, whatever word you want to use, is because there has been a number of these examples where if you're paying people, they show up. Right, they're not missionaries uh, in terms of people who you know want to go build Facebook or Amazon. They're mercenaries. They're like, hey, you show me, I buy this machine, I plug it in, I get paid some money. Okay, cool. I'm going to do that until there's enough people doing it where the return's gone down, and then I just move on to the next thing. And so you got to be careful. But but right now, Helium is probably one of the best examples of what is possible uh, with these decentralized networks. Okay, it's great. It's a great answer. I'll just add that we own both the equity in Helium, and we own the Helium tokens for those reasons. There was a great New York Times article, uh, perhaps we can put that link on our website, about how Helium is one of these uh, tokens that actually has great use cases in the world and is being used all over the place. And so uh, we like it. It's also a Solana-based token, right, Ann? I mean, they're, they're, they're trafficking on the Solana network, which is a fast, low-cost network. Uh, which is another reason why we like it. Um, before I go to uh, the, uh, let, let's take this email, but before I get to the email, Ant, what keeps you up at night? What do you worry about? And then we'll go to the email. In life or in uh, in Bitcoin and crypto? Why don't you give me both? Oh, in life, it's just uh, making sure I'm happy, right? As long as uh, as long as I'm happy, I'm good. But uh, if uh, if not, then uh, then there's probably be some issues. And then when it comes to the financial world, um, you know, it, it's just kind of th there's this thing. Or, or if my daughter gets upset, you know, that could always be bad. Right. See, uh, that was like right on cue. So yeah, you know, that's perfect. This perfect. Every parent listening knows you're as happy as your least happy child. The facts. See, every 100%. parent knows that, right? Hundred okay, percent. So, so on the investment so what, side. I'm a big uh, Andy Grove, only the paranoid survive believer. Amen. Right. And, and if you think That's about true. that, I, I've got another friend, um, uh, Mateo, who runs uh, a company called Eight Sleep. And he, he's he got this saying, he always says, shit is coming. Right. <laughs> like, just like, just keep in mind, no matter how good or bad it goes, like shit's coming. Um, and, and so I think that it's less about like, there's a specific thing. It's more of just what are the risks that we currently face and how do we kill those risks? Right. If you think of most entrepreneurs, uh, the non-entrepreneurs would say, oh, they're, they're risky. They're, they're risk takers. They take a lot of risk. But actually when you talk to great entrepreneurs, they're risk killers. 
right? They, they don't want risk. They want to get rid of that risk. And so um, I, I think it's just trying to constantly stay ahead of what are the things that could potentially hurt us or, or take us down and make sure that we reduce or mitigate as much as possible. Well, that, 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 that's a great answer. I mean, I sleep very soundly at night because I am a little stunat, which is a Italian expression for, I guess, I'm just either stupid or I'm just too tired, one or the other. Let's go to the, let's go to the email questions. Can you explain the Bitcoin ETF and what in-kind and cash settled mean? Does it really matter? Why are we being forced to do one over the other, and this is from Mike from Arizona. And Mike, thanks for uh, tuning in to speak up. Yeah, I mean, the Bitcoin ETF basically is just another way to get exposure to Bitcoin. You know, what it is not is that you're not buying Bitcoin, you're just buying exposure to Bitcoin. Um, but there's a lot of people who can't buy Bitcoin. If you're a large institution, um, if, if you're not comfortable buying Bitcoin and holding it, uh, but you want exposure to the price, then the ETF's a great solution. Um, the, the difference between in-kind and cash settled, uh, we, we could spend hours on the nuance. Basically, what I explain to people is if you're buying the ETF, you don't care. Right. The only people who care are the people who actually manage the ETFs and uh, the cash settled could be a little bit more difficult for people like Grayscale who already have a lot of Bitcoin. Uh, the in kind could be a kind of a new twist for people who are starting a brand new uh, ETF. But ultimately, the end user doesn't really care uh, in either direction. Right. And I think that the, why the government is doing this, in my opinion, and Anthony, you chime in. Uh, Michael, they want a, a cash to cash transaction. They're afraid of people that have Bitcoin that may be outside of the AML KYC protocols uh, that can swap their Bitcoin into the Bitcoin ETF. And so uh, I think we'll eventually get that, but at least not right now. Um, let's go to one more uh, e email and then uh, we'll let you go, my friend. I'm a senior. I don't wish to involve myself with multiple altcoins and wallets. I have some Bitcoin on a Trezor, but but should I be adding ETH? Am I, I miss buying Solana in time, Sandra from Canada. So I'm gonna start by saying, I don't think you've missed buying Solana. And if you're listening to this show, Anthony said something about pride and Anthony said something about uh, having too much pride or being too much uh, emotion baked in uh, when he sold his ETH and then watched it go up, but now it's at 2,400. Uh, he sold it to 300, could have bought it back at 500 and made a fortune, uh, but I don't think you missed Solana. I think it's a very, very good opportunity for Solana, but Anthony, answer that question for Sandra from Canada. Yeah, I, I think it's all about uh, time horizon, right? If you said to me, you've got to pick one coin that you think is going to be around 20 years from now, the only one I've got really deep confidence in is Bitcoin, right? And so I keep majority of uh, my portfolio there. Um, if you say to me, what's going to happen in the next six months or 12 months, I believe that we've started a new bull market and most, if not all of these assets are going to go up to some degree. Some of them will go up more than others, but for the most part, they kind of all rise together. There's, there's high correlation. And so, um, I, I, I do believe that it's kind of a story of like being in the market is more important than where you are in the market. And then time in the market is more important than timing the market. And so if you get those two things right, then you're probably okay. And then any decisions you make between individual cryptocurrencies, et cetera, uh, is, you're just optimizing, you know, potentially a good investment between good and great. Um, but, but as long as you're in the market in some form or fashion in, in a risk way that you can kind of handle, you should be in good shape. Okay. I, uh, I, I just want to ask control, our control room, any other email questions before I say goodbye to Mr. Bompliano? 
All right, so our last one, Anthony, you ready? Ethereum adoption for use with smart contracts does not appear to gaining much momentum in the marketplace. It's solving problems or just an additional layer. This is Kyle from Nevada via email. Yeah, I, I definitely think that it's solving a problem. Um, you know, smart contracts are, are uh, not only you know getting more and more popular in Ethereum. Now they're starting to infiltrate onto other blockchains as well. Bitcoin, for example, is now starting to figure out how to bring smart contracts to Bitcoin. And so, is Ethereum going to be the place where smart contracts end up being the dominant uh, thing, and and that's the one that survives? Uh, or do smart contracts become popular somewhere else? Not really sure. Um, but what I do know is that a smart contract is just automated code, right? It basically says if then. So if Anthony gives me the deed to his house, then I give him the money to buy the house, right? Um, and, and so that's something that's been going on for a long time. We now have this new term, smart contract, uh, but really it's just code that executes based on preset parameters. And so I think that that will always be something that's important in the software world. Anthony, how do we find you? Okay, you are a fascinating human being. You're a un young entrepreneur. I think you're your, your generation's uh, Kenneth Langone. Hopefully, I'm going to see your name on a hospital someday or even bigger than that, maybe even a university. How do we find you? Uh, just on Twitter. Just twitter.com or x.com, I guess now. Uh, a. Pompliano. Just my first initial, last name. And uh, I do plenty well, you of do, you, But you do a podcast. Don't you? Where, where, where yeah. would we find yeah. you? Well, I tweet the podcast every day. So if you're on Twitter, then you'll, you'll see the podcast. But it's just the Pomp Podcast. Yeah. Uh, you have, had a, you have a newsletter. Yeah. I'm a subscriber to your newsletter. How do people subscribe to your newsletter? Pompletter.com. And uh, Pomp -letter -com. You know, I, I have uh, esteemed guests like Anthony Scaramucci join all the time. Yeah. But, you know, you know what I love is that I Italian singles and you use Italian singles. See that? Yeah, of course. And someday there's going to be a lot of Italian singles built into one Bitcoin token. That's for sure. Anthony, thank you so much for joining us on Speak Up with Anthony Scaramucci. Guys, you can send us voicemails, emails. You can dial into the show, 92themooch, 928-436-6624. So grateful to have you on, and I hope you'll come back. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me, guys, and I uh, hope it was valuable.